continuing our series on uh, becoming intercessors. And um, I, I, I hope that today's message, just like last week's message, is not about, okay, cool, um, we've learned something new, but it really is about how am I going to live this out? I think that there's something that God is wanting to do in our church. And like what Claire was saying, we're in a pivotal uh, season. Uh, practically, we're looking at uh, leasing a building, but I feel like it, as a church, we're transitioning. And um, it feels like, I'm just going to put this out there, you, you, you need to um, you know, chew on this and work this out for yourself. But I think as a church, we need to grow up a little bit. I feel like there's this sense that God is saying, hey, you want more, then you're going to need to be able to carry more. Um, I think the Bible often talks about the promises of God, and then the person that receives the promise of God then has to go through a maturing season. We think about Joseph. He hears from God, God's going to do these amazing things in my life, and then he gets thrown in jail. He gets sold as a slave. What is that about? Is it to say that God doesn't care about Joseph, or is it like, Joseph, there's something on your life, but you need to grow up. You need to grow into it. Moses gets called to be, uh, you know, the deliverer of Israel. What happens after that? 40 years of being a nobody. Even Jesus himself, he knows that God is calling into something. What does he do? 40 days in the desert, all alone. Why is this theme in the Bible so often uh, thrown up? It's because if we don't mature, we don't carry the fullness of what God has for us. And I think that there is more than that uh, God wants to do in our church, but are we going to mature and get ready? What does that mean for you uh, to be part of this church and to carry the more that God has? Um, and don't hear this as a, you need to do this, you need to do that, but it's more of a, hey, allow God to speak into your life about who you are becoming and um, who you're meant to be and the great things that God has for you and through you and whether you're saying, yes, God, I, I want that and so I'm going to lean into that and what that looks like. I think 12-hour prayer is a great time to... to um, one of the things I've learned about maturity, let me just go back, is that maturity in the moment always feels like a trial. No one ever grows up and goes, oh, wow, that was so much fun. <laughs> the times I've grown the most are the times that I hurt the most. And there's this weird thing, Sam hasn't had it yet, but it's called growing pains. Why is it called growing joys? <laughs> Come on, God, if you want me to grow up, surely you'll make it nice. Why isn't medicine automatically sweet? Why does it taste bitter and difficult? Maybe, that's not, maybe bitter and difficult isn't bad. Maybe it's necessary. And maybe we need to learn how to lean into it. Anyway, so today I want to talk about prayer. I want to continue to talk about prayer. Last week we talked about how God delights in intercessors. That we are all called to intercede. And that is a special delight that God has for people who intercede. You need to listen to that message, not because I'm so amazing at teaching, but because I think that that is something that we need to get. In our Western mindset, we become so individualistic that it's all about me praying for me, me praying for just my loved ones, when really God says pray for everyone. And this is a good thing. This is what God delights in. And then today I want to talk about praying in Jesus' name. I want to talk about faith. And I think that this is a topic that um, we often misunderstand. And so I'm really excited about this because I think if we get this, it's going to stir up something in our prayer lives. And a key passage I'm going to look at today is 1 John 5, 13 and 17. I'm going to read this and then we're going to unpack it together. 
this is what uh, John the Apostle writes. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. I'm going to skip the rest um, for another sermon another day because it gets a bit tricky there. But let's just pray. Uh, God, I know that you want to speak to us this morning. I know that you're wanting to stir something up in this house. I know that you have called every church, your body, to be a house of prayer. And I pray that this is not something that we neglect or put aside in our walk with you, but we see as pivotal, as necessary, as a central part of who we are as Christians. And so I pray you speak to us this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, uh, John writes... Uh, this verse, and he says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he goes on to say that when God hears us, what he's saying is that God gives us. Whatever we ask in God's will, he gives to us. That is a central promise of God. There's, there's this thing about the Bible that if you read it with your eyes open to understand God's promises, your life is going to be so much richer. Why? Because you know what you can depend on God on, uh, what you can depend on God for, because He has already uh, revealed that this is how He is going to act, and His promises are yes and amen. This is what He will do, and this is one of the promises. And John, the apostle, has this um, very central revelation about this understanding of how to pray. In um, his gospel, in the gospel of John, in uh, chapters 14 to 17, John records uh, Jesus' final address, his final teaching to his disciples before he dies. And in these three chapters, on six occasions, he records Jesus saying something along the lines of, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. And there's a, this little graphic, uh, Anthony, with the six verses on it. It's just a little white box. Six times. Go take down those references. Go look at that. Jesus, before he dies, tells his disciples six times, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is important, guys. Jesus doesn't say, just before he dies, remember I love you. Remember I love you. My grace is sufficient. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. He writes it, John remembers it so vividly that when he records it, he goes, I need to put this in there. I don't know if John necessarily is recording this word for word. I believe that the Holy Spirit was helping John as he wrote the gospel and inspiring John to bring to mind Jesus' words. But no matter whether it was John's emphasis or Jesus' emphasis, we know that there is an emphasis. Whatever we ask in Jesus' name, this he will do. But our Christian and probably, let's be honest, the Pentecostal faith has probably butchered this and made this a magic phrase. 
How many times do we pray in Jesus' name? God bless this food into our bodies, cut the calories in half, in your name we pray. You know, God, I really want this job, in your name you will give me this job. I really like this car, in your name I want this car. I want health, give me health in Jesus' name. And we almost throw Jesus' name around like it's Alakazam. You will do this, shebang, and you know, if we get this... Is this what Jesus was saying? You know that the Bible actually shows us in a very graphic story in Acts chapter 19, verse 13 to 16. We have this amazing, really hilarious story where there's these seven sons of Sceva and they had seen Paul doing some crazy, amazing miracles and they go, wow, what, did, what was Paul doing? How did, it, how did Paul make all these miracles happen? Oh, it's the magic phrase in Jesus' name. And so they approach this demoniac and they say to this demoniac, I adjure you by the, by the name of Jesus, I think. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Anyway, like, depending on your version, they pray in Jesus' name for this guy. And the response of this demonic, the demon in this person is hilarious. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And then he proceeds to beat the crap out of them so they run around naked. The next time you pray in Jesus' name, Remember what you're praying for, and I hope that so that you remember this, a demon-possessed person will run in and beat the crap out of you so you don't take Jesus' name in vain, right? This is, is in the Bible so that we know that just simply saying the words has no power. Adding in Jesus' name does not change your prayer from weak to powerful, it doesn't change your prayer from unanswered to answered. It's not like God is listening out and saying, oh, that person has a great prayer. Oh, I forgot to say in Jesus' name. Oh, you're not going to get that grace. You forgot the magic words. This is not please in, Jesus, in God's language. It's like, I wonder this in Jesus' name. It's like, oh, you said please. You asked nice. Where did this thinking come from? Why do we think that God is so manipulatable, so, so easy, like, oh, today I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to use this magic phrase and my life will be better for it. No, there is something so much deeper. And John, in his epistle, in his letter that he writes in 1 John 5, as we read, already unpacks this. Remember, this is a huge theme for John, so this is really important. And so he writes whatever we ask according to God's will. Asking in Jesus' name is not for us to go around saying some magic language. It is about us praying according to God's will. When we pray according to God's will, He will give it to us. It will be done. That's the promise. The problem that I have with this whole thing, and I've thought long and hard about this and worked out why I don't actually personally, for a long time, like prayer, is because if, it's, if it is in God's will, if it is His good, pleasing and perfect will, if it is good for me to have what's in God's will, why do I need 
to ask for it. Anyone in that position where you thought about that? It's like if God already wants me to have it, then give it. <laughs> Why do I need to pray in Jesus' name? Why can't he just go, there you go, it's in my will, you have it. Why does he require us to ask? And I struggle with that, so I'm, I'm not going to pray. I don't need to pray because God you already knows. So maybe, I guess the prayer is, you know what's good for me, I want it, thank you. <laughs> Should that be the extent of our prayer life? And I thought about it, I thought about it some more. And then I realized something really important. God often gives us without us asking. He gives us many good things without us asking. For example, take a breath. God allowed that. You woke up this morning. God willed that. You drove here this morning without getting into a car crash. To some extent, I don't know how it all works. God willed that. You laughed, hopefully sometime over this last week. You've experienced joy in your life. You've experienced things that you haven't worked for. And sometimes when you work for something, there is great fruit in it. God gave and God gives. We see when Jesus walked on the face of the planet, there were many people that he healed without them asking. He goes to them and he says, do you want healing? They say, yes, all right, cool. He does that. God gives without us asking, but there are times where he doesn't give until we ask. And we have to see that there is a difference. God is not withholding good from you because he always gives good to you. But there are some good that we need to learn how to ask for. And we need to ask the question, why does God require me to ask for some things, not all things? Because this is not about us needing to think about every single aspect of our life and every single thing that we need and bring it to a list before God and say, please, in the name of Jesus. I don't wake up in the morning saying, God, please, I think I need a whole bunch of breath this morning. Please, please give that to me. I don't have to pray, God, I pray, please don't let the roof leak today. Please let my car start. I don't list it at the start of the day in order to receive the goodness. God is already doing good without me knowing. But there are moments and there are things that we learn to pray for because it activates our faith. And faith is not about me having this great... Um, in Pentecostalism... Sometimes I have come to the impression that faith is how loud you shout. Anyone with me? I pray this in the name of Jesus. I decree and I declare that this is what God wants to give to me, and so He will give it to me. And everyone's like, Woo! And I was like, Faith is in the building. Is that faith? Is that what faith is all about? That the louder I shout, the more I stir up my feelings and my excitement. Suddenly, adrenaline equals God. <laughs> How I feel equals God. And in the same token, I think a whole bunch of people go, I don't feel it, so I won't pray it because I don't have faith. 
I need someone else who has got greater faith to pray for me because I don't feel it and I don't know it enough. But that person prays loud enough, so please pray for me. Because you know how to get God to do good things for me. Is that faith? Maybe we need to rethink about what faith is. See, this is what I've come to understand. Faith is actually understanding God's will and acting out in obedience. That's all faith is. Faith is not some weird confidence. In fact, the times I've had to step out in faith are often the times that I don't feel it. If I felt it, it's not really much of a step out of my comfort zone. I'm working in my comfort zone. And faith is not even about comfort zones. I think we often talk about faith as risks. I think it's a greater risk not to obey Christ than to disobey Him. I wonder if we had this mindset like, God, what are you doing? If I know what God is doing and I live out in obedience of what God is doing, the grace is always there. For us as a church, stepping out into this lease is not praying, God, give me this number in my head so that I can, you know. It's about this, God, if you're in it, let's do it. God, if you're in it, I want it. God, if you're saying this, yes, I'm coming alongside you. We need to understand that our faith in every facet of our life is about hearing God and living in obedience to Him. See, Bonhoeffer, a theologian, he wrote, a whole bunch of stuff about faith and obedience while he was in Nazi concentration camp. He was literally about to die and he writes this. There is no separation between faith and obedience. No separation. Faith and obedience is the same thing. See, sometimes we like to break that apart and we like to say we have faith and therefore we obey. He said, what's the point of that? Because if you have faith and you don't obey, was it faith? But if you are saying that you're obeying, that necessarily means that you've already listened to God. And so that's the element of faith there. You believe that there is this higher being that is guiding you and speaking to you. So faith and obedience are the same thing. And then he draws this example of Peter walking on the water. Can you imagine what this scenario would be like? Uh, Peter sees Jesus walking on the water towards him and he goes, man, that's cool. And then he goes, I want to walk on water. And so he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, if that's you, call me to come. And Jesus says, come. And so we know the story. Peter steps out of the boat and he begins to walk towards Jesus, right? Really cool story. But think about a couple of different scenarios. Imagine Peter sees Jesus walking on water and in his heart he goes, Jesus walks on water. I'm going to walk on water. And then he steps out of the boat. We might call that faith, I call that stupidity. Why do we think that, oh, because I see that happening over there, it necessarily means it applies to me. Jesus raised people from the dead. I'm going to go to the cemetery and start casting out all these dead demons and let all these bones come alive. No, Jesus didn't call you to do that. That's stupidity. That's not faith. But imagine another part of this scenario, this If Jesus says, come to Peter, Peter says, yes, Jesus, if it's you, call me. And and Jesus says, yes. And Peter goes, oh, it's enough for me to know that you're called. I'm staying in the boat. At least I know you would have called, Jesus. 
Is that faith? Or is it some kind of weird intellectual runabouts in our head? See, the only reason we know that Peter had faith is because he called out to Jesus, Jesus spoke, Peter responded in obedience. That's faith. So the more that we know what God is saying, and the more we obey, the more faith we have. The moment that Peter started sinking is that he took his eyes off Jesus and into the circumstances. And then he started to dabble and to work with the circumstances rather than to work with Jesus. And Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. Your faith didn't sustain because you stopped looking at me. And this is something that I think we need to realize as Christians. That the, when we stop listening to Jesus and we stop looking at what he's doing and we stop obeying what he's doing, that is a lack of faith. And Bonhoeffer says in a very convicting way, me staying away from God's voice is still a lack of faith. When I stop putting myself in contexts and situations where I get to hear God's voice and obey, you are not living by faith. One of the things that Bonhoeffer writes is that the gathered church is when we get to hear the word of God. We hear what God is wanting, and, and hopefully if you've got a teacher who's you know, looked into a word, he's teaching the proper word of God, you're hearing the word of God, and it gives you an opportunity to obey. It gives you an opportunity to have faith. You not being in this room could be a lack of faith. God is pleased only with faith. Not with some pseudo hyper faith where you do things before God's saying. And not just some, let me work things out before I come into your presence. But it's God, speak to me. Yes, I'll obey. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I wonder how many people here are not having the fullness of the joy of God because you're not living by faith. And I'm not saying this in a, as a condemning way, but maybe because you've got some confusion as to what faith is. And you're thinking, man, I need to do all of these things and, and activate all of these things. I need to get rid of the sin in my life, etc., etc. No, it's simply I hear God and I say yes and I obey. That's faith. So why is it that God requires us to pray sometimes? Maybe it's because without ne us needing to ask, we don't even try to seek God's will. And this is one of the problems with our very comfortable Western lifestyle. There's not many things that we need to ask for. I've got my job. I've got my lifestyle that I've carved out. I don't need all of that. I've got good enough. So I don't need to pray because I don't need to hear what God wants to do because I don't need God to do. That's the scary nature of our culture where we've become so self-sufficient that asking anything of anyone is considered 
a problem. But Christians, when we realize that the promise of God is whatever we ask according to God's will, He will do, not as an indictment on how good you are going, but more as a revelation of our closeness that we have towards Him and what He wants to do, how much more life is going to be released in you and through you? See, when we come to the book of 1 John 5, the letter that John writes, John is actually writing about a situation uh, specifically that is happening in the church at that time. And we need to realize this. John wasn't just writing because he was having a good time. John was writing because there was a situation that he wanted to address. And the situation that he wanted to address, according to scholars who did the research, is that in the church there were a bunch of people that started teaching a heresy. And the heresy is this, that Jesus wasn't necessarily fully God. That Jesus didn't necessarily give the fullness of forgiveness of sin. And that we as Christians do not have power over sin. Basically, the heresy was this, that Jesus' work was insufficient. And so, a whole bunch of people got really confused because they were wrestling with this thought about Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, the, 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 the perfect sacrifice for me, but at the same time being able to uh, uh, release grace into my life. They were wrestling with that, and they started to leave the church because they were starting to think, God isn't really able to do what he said that he's going to do. That was the heresy that John was fighting at that time and writing to the church about. And so he starts off the letter, literally, you can read this in 1 John 1. He starts to say, this letter is written by someone who saw the life that came to this earth and who walked beside him and who saw all that he did. And I'm writing this to you to remind you that I was an eyewitness and I taught you all that I saw and all that Jesus taught me. And then he says in 1 John 1 verse 4, and I write this that our joy may be complete. He says, I'm writing this to you not to blame you for being lacking in faith or whatever. I'm writing this because I want you to have the joy that I have. I want us to have this joy that we have in Christ when we understand who He is, what He's promised, and what He's done, and that He's sufficient. And so John continues to write all about this until we hit 1 John chapter 5, which is uh, uh, the summary. It is the closing uh, passage uh, of, of this letter. And so he writes, let me write this again, uh, read this again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He starts off with that. What does he mean by that? He is writing to a church who knows who Jesus is. He's not writing to people who don't know who Jesus is. He said, you've heard me preach about Jesus. You know who Jesus is. You know his name. So I am writing these things to you who already believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There is a possibility for us to be Christians in the sense that we know Jesus' name, but still not have eternal life. We are not accessing eternal life. Now, when John writes eternal life, he's not saying the life that we have after death. He's not talking about life in heaven, so to speak. He, John very specifically says that this is eternal life that you know Jesus. 
You can read this in one of his epistles. Um, and, and, and so he is saying that you know life when you know life. You have life when you know the one who is life. You have life when you have relationship with the one who is by definition life. And he says that you may know the name of the one who is life, but you may not have life. And so he writes this letter, I write this to you who know who Jesus is, that you may actually have relationship with him that you may access the fullness of what Jesus has for you. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes on in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. Isn't it interesting that he says, I want you to have life so you pray with confidence. Maybe when we learn to pray in Jesus' name, according to his will, that is the manifestation. That is us exercising faith. That is us receiving and living out in the life that God has for us. This is not an add-on. When you have need, you come to Jesus. When you face something that you can't deal with, you come to Jesus. That's not what this is about. This is about, you know Jesus, you know his life, pray, receive. Maybe prayer is that step of obedience that builds our faith. Maybe I need to pray more because when I pray, it builds my faith because I'm practicing obedience to what Jesus is saying. Maybe when I pray, it's putting me in a place where I'm actually listening out to God and saying, God, what is it that you actually will? There's a whole bunch of stuff that I need, or I think that I need. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I want, but what is it that you will? Because I want to pray according to that, because the promise is when I pray according to that, it will be done. That excites me. Because so often I was taught that my faith is what determines what I'm going to get. But when I learned that my faith is simply obedience to what God has already said, it's not really dependent on me, is it? It's, me depend it's dependent on me listening out to God. That's all that it is. If we practice that this week... If we practice that today, God, what is it that you want? We listen out. We know the promises of God, not just in the moment, but what is in the word of God. How much more faith would we have to live out what God is saying? There are people here who are feeling really lost. And you're questioning, what is it that God you want to do in my life? What's the call of God in my life? What's this? What's that? And I feel God saying, maybe if you just obeyed me and you started to, every day, deliberately say yes to what I'm saying, the simple stuff that is already in the Word of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe even just try our best to obey those two commands could radically change your life. Oh, but God, I don't know how you want me to love people. Just open your 
bleeping eyes. <laughs> the world is so full of fear, so burdened. What if we just learn to love the people now? And over time, as you do that, I believe that God begins to sharpen. He sees the heart of obedience, and He begins to go, let's, let's do this. You've got this. You're wanting this. But so often we say, I want to know what the end point is before I start obeying. What's in it for me before I start doing? Why, why don't we start doing, trusting that God knows best for our lives? And I wonder what's going to happen from there. Or just read your Bible. And say, God, show me today from your word what is it you want me to do. If you're not in the habit of reading the Bible, read the Gospels. And then read the epistles. Don't start in Leviticus because that's going to confuse you. <laughs> it's a great thing to learn when you've got a handle. If you've never read your Bible before, don't start at the start. It's confusing, I know. But let's start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Let's read Galatians, Ephesians. And then from there, obey what you are reading. If you don't get what you're reading, ask someone. You're not less than for not understanding what the Bible is saying. You're not less than at all, but you're living less than when you're not obeying. I think I pushed that point enough. I want to point one last thing out to you today. See, Jesus, uh, sorry, John writes about how, you know, whatever you ask in God's name, in God's will, you will receive. The very next verse, in verse 16, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now, we don't have time to talk about what's this whole sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death. And unfortunately, when we come to this particular passage, we focus so much on this whole like sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death that we forget that this passage actually comes after John says, basically, know Jesus and get the life, you know? have a relationship with him, learn to pray, and then he says, pray for your brothers. This all flows together in the same thought. Because if we leave this segment out, what we have is that I have a personal relationship with God that is all about me and him. But John's actually saying, no, that's not about it. If you want to pray, if you want to learn to pray, pray for someone else. And you pray for someone else who is committing a sin. What does that mean? A sin is not like you see someone and say, oh, that person is watching pornography. I better pray for that person. We kind of like elevate it to that kind of level. Sin basically is a person struggling to obey God. That's all it is. And let me tell you, every single person in this room right now, even little Margaret, <laughs> struggles to fully obey God. Maybe not Margaret. She's perfect. <laughs> she hasn't developed a stage where she has a will yet. Or maybe the parents have a different story. <laughs> I put forward to you that every one of us, every day, is in a struggle to obey Christ. That's just the reality of our lives. So who are you supposed to pray for? Everyone. Who here is struggling with sin? Everyone. So who should we pray for? Everyone. But guess what? There's a crazy promise here that I was looking at this. I went like, whoa, I've never seen this before. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. What does he shall ask me? Pray. 
Pray to God about it. And God will give him life. And God will promise. Highlight it. God will give him life. This is not pray for them that God will punish them or whatever. This is God saying, when you pray according to my will, I will do. What is my will? That that person has life. And so I will pray that this person will have life. Why is it important to pray for someone else? When you see them struggling, when you recognize that there's a struggle in their life. Because if I don't pray for them, I become the one that has to fix it. I see this person, oh, this person's struggling with their walk with God. Oh, I better meet up with them. I better teach them the, the five tenets of the Christian faith and, 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 you know, how to become a holier person and a modern-day monk. <laughs> I have to teach them all this stuff because if I don't teach them, they will never get it. Oh, no, no, no. I've got it backwards. I pray that God will give them life. And He will. And then sometimes God will say, through you. On occasion, he'll say, yep, you need to do something about that. You need to show care. You need to show love. You need to correct. You need to exhort. You need to encourage. You need to whatever it is. But the first point is knowing that I pray according to God's will that he wants to give them life. He releases it. And then I simply obey whatever else I have to do. This is freeing for me. Because sometimes I see the sin committed in this room. <laughs> totally joking. But often I'm like, here we go, God. I don't know what else to do. I've come to the end of my resources and my ability, and God's like, yeah, because you started at the wrong point. <laughs> you started giving when you haven't received yet. You started fixing without knowing what you're trying to fix. You know the person that goes, like, goes to their car and starts tinkering with 15 different things because maybe one of them is the thing that's wrong and you make a bigger mess of it? I'm guilty of doing that with people's lives. I go to someone and I go, like, I need to fix this. And so I start prying it apart, pulling it apart, and I'm like, oh, no. How does this all come back together? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if I go to the one who created that person. Maybe if I go to the person, uh, the, the one who, who knows the beginning and the end. Maybe if I go to the one who sees every breath that we take. Maybe you will tell me, hey, 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 that's where the issue is and you can do something about it. Oh, is that it? See, that's the other problem. When I pray like that, I often tell God, is that it? It's not enough. Send the person a text to encourage them. Really? But that person is like waist deep in their sin. And I'm supposed to encourage them that they're doing well? Send them an encouragement. Oh, it's not enough, God. I know that you created them. But you know, I think I know better at what they really need. I've got some messed up obedience issues in my life. I know that. Pray for me. I struggle with my sin. Release life into me, please. But this is what I started to see. What if we had a church that practiced this 24-7? 
I see your struggle. You see my struggle. I pray that God will give you life. You pray that God will give me life. And God will do it. Why do we fight and quarrel? Why do we covet and steal? Is it not because you don't have? And you don't have because you don't ask. It's what James wrote. I know it's not necessarily the same context as in prayer, but so I was thinking about it, and I was like, God, I want more life in this church. Pray. Not for yourself. The promise is not when you are struggling in sin by yourself, you go to God yourself, and God will give you life for yourself. That promise is linked to you praying for someone else. Do you hear that? Why does God delight in intercessors? I think because intercessors don't always come to God with issues that I am dealing with. I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Maybe if we were in a community where everyone's praying for what that person needs and also receiving the prayers that bring life, I wonder what that would do to this community. You don't need to be perfect in your faith to be able to pray like that. You don't need to have a, a PhD in how God works in order to pray that someone else will have life. You don't need to feel confident that God will listen to you because you've already been made righteous in Him. You have confidence to enter the throne room of God, to go to the throne of mercy, to receive. And a part of that is God is saying, pray for someone else. We can get the band up. I want this to be a practical moment for our church. You don't need to come up to the front for someone else to pray for you. You need to pray for someone else. So I want you to get your phone out. If you don't have your phone, you can get some piece of paper out. And I want you to think about someone that is in this room, preferably, or perhaps someone not in this room that's part of this family, or someone in your life that you have a heart for. But I really want us to do something for this family. Understand that maybe right now you don't have their number or whatever. Get the number after this. But I want you to type out this message. How can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Because if we start, if we start praying for each other, we catch the heart of God for His people. And we start to see the life released in this family. Why is it important for us to gather on Sundays every week? It's because you see each other. I see your face and you see mine. You see me when I'm tired. You see me when I'm not at my best. And you get to ask, how can I pray for you? That's what a community is for. This is not 
a condem- condemnation for people that isn't here or whatever. Don't, don't, don't hear that. But I do believe that there is something that we need to bust in this culture. I'm tired and I need rest, so I'm going to take time off from the church. No, you take time off from your work and you make time to go to the well. You don't take time off from the well so that you can go to your work. You take time from your work to get to the well. If you're dry, get to the well. Where's the well? Yes, it's between you and God, but it's also between you, God, and His community. And it's about taking your flipping masks off. I'm tired and I'm struggling and I don't know what else to do. Pray for me. My kid's driving me up the wall and I don't know what else to do about it. Pray for me. I don't know what it is about us that we go, I'm only going to church if everyone can think that I'm a holy person. What rubbish? Go to heaven. Seriously. (laughs) That's the only place that you belong if you're that holy. Here is where the people who struggle with sin are. But when we see each other, can we be a church that actually doesn't judge? We all struggle. So how can I pray for you? Not in a condescending way, hear the stories and all that kind of stuff, but can we also add prayer in as part of, not the only thing, the part of the care, and allow God to speak to you as well. Maybe in a moment he will say, go give them a meal. Share your wisdom from your life, or whatever it is. But can we just start being that kind of community? So let's take a moment, let's pray. Who is it today that I can text? How can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Type the person's name in if you got their number and send them the text. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.